Well, this morning, uh, as I have been advertising, we are going to take another week off from our study through the Gospel of John, which incidentally will extend into next week. I'm really excited about next week. We're going to be, uh, we've been telling you a little bit here and there about our lay counseling ministry, and we've had a great group of people who have been very committed. They've come out early mornings on Wednesdays, and we've been going through some training together. And this coming Sunday on the 8th, we want to take a Sunday off to pray and commission those who have been through that training, and um, also just kind of communicate our heart behind that ministry and our hopes for it here in the life of our fellowship. So come back next Sunday. It's going to be a different sort of a Sunday, but looking forward to that and excited about what God is going to do there. Uh, This morning, with being the Sunday before Election Day, I wanted to take time out in a special way to kind of prepare our hearts for that. Uh, Today, in churches all across our country, the faithful are gathering, and pastors will try, with varying degrees of success, to focus God's people in a helpful way, in a God-centered, worshipful way around this coming event. And it's not an easy thing to do, especially in these days when our nation has drifted so far from God and in which the passions and goals of the church are so confusingly mingled with a passion for politics and in which our people are so divided along political lines and there is so little that America celebrates today that the church can celebrate with her. We celebrate our freedoms, yes, but we also must mourn what America in her freedom is choosing for herself. Our purpose for gathering here today, however, is not to focus on the election, but to try and maintain a focus on God in the midst of this election. I have at times been in Bible studies where you mention Jesus and people yawn. But if you mention Obama or Trump or some controversial political matter, people are all of a sudden tripping over themselves to share their opinions. The kingdom bores them. It's the republic that captures their imagination and commands their passions. And I don't want to feed into that this morning. As always, our purpose in gathering here together is to worship God. This morning, we want to fall ever more deeply in love with Him, to praise Him, to be satisfied in His excellence, and to talk about our calling as a people within a people. I think back a couple years ago when we did our study through the book of Esther, and of all the great momentous things that were happening on the world stage at that time, the Persian invasion of Greece, the rise and fall of empires, succession of kings, The story which has endured in God's word and will extend into eternity was about the inner turmoil, the crisis of faith of a woman named Hadassah. And I want you to know, I really believe this with all my heart, that with everything going on in Washington and on the world stage, the main show is what's going on in the hearts and minds of God's people in this hour. The rest is honestly just the setting. It's just the backdrop for the main show, which is God's story of his redemptive history and the willingness of God's people to cling to him with a quiet confidence in the midst of all the turmoil that surrounds. In light of the national election that will take place on Tuesday, 
and all the concern and, frankly, anxiety surrounding the outcome of that election, I felt it would be appropriate and hopefully also helpful if we gave ourselves over to prayer this morning. And we also want to seek encouragement and counsel from God and His Word as we head into the voting booth. My goal in all of this, again, is not to influence your vote, but rather to help us as God's people focus on God in a way that will prepare our hearts as we vote. God is perfect in all His ways. He's not just knowledgeable, He's perfect in His knowledge. He's not just strong and able, He's perfectly so. He's not just wise, He is perfectly and infinitely wise. He is perfect, His ways are perfect, He sees things perfectly. He is orchestrating all things perfectly, and His purposes cannot be foiled, slowed down, thwarted, changed. But we are deeply imperfect creatures who see only in part, and we often misunderstand and misinterpret the little that we see. We're small in power. Our minds are often led astray through foolish reasoning and anxiety. And so with that in mind, let's understand prayer correctly this morning. Prayer is not a tool used by human beings to pull the levers of power in heaven. Human beings cannot counsel God in the way He should go or inform Him of things He doesn't know. We cannot move Him to a place of passion that He does not yet feel. We cannot get Him to yield, relent, change course, or change His mind. The outcome of Tuesday has been known to our God since before the foundations of the earth were laid, and it cannot be changed. So when we speak of prayer, we understand that to mean that prayer is a tool given to us by God to change us, not Him, to bring us into agreement with His will, His heart, not the other way around. Consider Isaiah 40. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Well, of course, no one is like God. No man can serve as his counselor or teacher or judge. But all too often, this is how people approach God in prayer, especially at times like this. But when we understand prayer correctly, we see that it is a tool given to man by God, again, not to bring him into agreement with our view of things. But rather, in prayer, we find mysteriously that our hearts and minds are brought into agreement with God's perfect will. Prayer changes us. 
The message this morning will be structured a little differently than normal. Here's what we're going to do. I feel that God has laid on my heart a few things for us to look at and consider and take encouragement from. And after briefly discussing each, I want us to take a moment and just quietly pray. Just right here. It'll be a little awkward if you're listening online because there'll just be some dead space, but that's okay. I think we're just going to spend some time quietly in prayer this morning about a few different things. So here's the first thing I want us to see. I think the first place we have to start as we approach this election has to do with the issue of repentance. In Isaiah 6, we read about a time when the prophet Isaiah was given a vision of God. He wrote this, In the year that King Uzziah died, that's speaking of political transition, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Uh, And we'll stop right there. Here we see that when Isaiah saw God in his glory, he was made instantly and uncomfortably aware that he was a sinner. He was a sinner who was living in the midst of a sinful people. He said, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips from among a people of unclean lips. We in the church in America need more than ever to seek the face of God in his word. And as we gaze upon God in his word, we will, like Isaiah, say that we are people who have unclean lips, and we live amongst a people of unclean lips. Very often in my history growing up in the church, which is my entire life, uh, as I've sat in Bible studies and heard people sit around my living room talking, Much of the conversation that church people have, at least where that conversation turns towards the culture at large, has to do with the sins we see out there. (laughs) Oh, did you hear about, oh, this new stat that came out. Did you hear the new thing from Barna Research Group? This is so awful. Look at this. Look at that. But where Isaiah turns to, when he sees God in all his glory, what does he say? He doesn't apologize for the unwashed masses. The first thing he does is he says, I'm a sinner. I need to repent. I've got a sin problem. So let the repentance and turning that we long to see in our country begin today with you, with me, with our church and with each one of us personally. An unholy church has nothing to say to an unholy culture. 
are the sin are there sins that we need to confess and repent of are there things in our life that are displeasing to god let's begin this conversation with god about our country and our concerns for our country and our countrymen begin with an honest coming to the lord and saying let it start with me in Psalm 139, 23-24, through 24, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I'd invite you right now in just a quiet moment of prayer to draw before the Lord and confess and repent whatever you need to. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do long to see our people turn to the truth. Father, we long to see you exalted among the American people. Father, we long to see policies in the public realm that reflect the beauty and peace of a biblical lifestyle. Father, we long for many things out there, but God, let it begin in here with us, with me. Father, we come before you and acknowledge, Lord, that we have sinned, that we have in many different ways strayed from what is closest to your heart. We have strayed from what we know to be the truth. Father, we ask you for forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us repentance. Father, we need grace not only to cover our sins, but also our sinning. God, help us to put those sins to death and live for you, truly. Father, we are a people of unclean lips from among a people of unclean lips, and we lean upon your grace and your forgiveness, and we are so grateful, Lord, for the way you catch us when we lean into you in that way. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your long-suffering patience toward us. Help us to be holy as you are holy. In Jesus' name, amen. The second point I wanted us to consider in God's word is the background to Isaiah's words. Uh, Isaiah was a long-tenured prophet. 
And throughout the reign of Ahaz and Hezekiah, two temptations gripped God's people. We need to keep in mind that these were days of real crisis in Judah. Under King Uzziah and Jotham, Judah had enjoyed a prolonged period of peace and prosperity. Uzziah reigned for over five decades, and it was in many ways like a second golden period for Judah. Uh, If you read about that in the Old Testament, he was a particularly successful king. The nation prospered under his reign. There was a long period of peace and prosperity. But now everything seems to be in peril. Internally, the social and economic fabric of the nation was fraying. Externally, neighboring empires were flexing their muscles and threatening Judah with invasion. So the crisis wasn't just that the nation was changing for the worse, the sense that they were drifting away from God and the right values. The very existence of their nation and the safety of their children was in jeopardy. And in the midst of these very serious crises, the people of Judah began to cast about for anything that might promise a continuation of the peace and prosperity that they had experienced up to that point. And there was also a strong and vocal faction in the king's court arguing that Judah should pursue alliances with strong neighbors, such as Egypt, that they would come to their aid if they were attacked. And this displeased God because it meant that the people were not putting their trust in him, but in that of man. Consider this, in Isaiah 30, he said, "'Woe to the obstinate children,' declares the Lord." to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace." And in chapter 31, verse 1, it says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. In many ways, this echoes Psalm 20, where David said, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The real issue for God's people in those days, and perhaps in these days also, was which would they choose? Would their confidence be in God, or would they form desperate alliances? Would they say like David, some trust in this or that, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God? Or would they jump ship and jump into bed with idols in Egypt? This was the great question hanging over Judah of Isaiah's day. And what they did with that question had great consequences. They chose Egypt, they chose idol, and they were led into exile. And I feel it is a question that is also hanging heavily over the church in America today as we head into the polls on Tuesday. I think... And I hear I speak anecdotally. I have no stats. I just have my sense as somebody who's grown up in the church and has had a lot of conversations with fellow Christians. But my 
my inner sense, and also, honestly, just as I look at the inner terrain of my own heart, let me just be very honest. I think I flirt with these things too. I struggle, as we all do, perhaps. I think for many Christians, they have allowed their sense of security to become attached to the strength of the economy rather than in a provider God, or in election results rather than in our great king, or who sits on the Supreme Court rather than a God who sits on high. Anxiety over the state of things in our country has caused some in the church today to seek a desperate alliance with the political process. We want to create heaven here, now, rather than trust in a coming day. Christians in this country have enjoyed a period of peace and prosperity that is unprecedented in the history of the world. I love uh, the story of Rip Van Winkle. I like to read it to my kids at bedtime. In that story, of course, Rip Van Winkle goes up in the mountains. He drinks some mystery punch from Henry Hudson and his crew. He falls asleep. (laughs) And then he wakes up with a long beard. His gun is rusty. His clothes are in tatters. And the country has completely changed. He goes down into town. There's a strange flag. There's a politician standing there. And he goes, what happened to my country? And I really have the sense that America... The church in America is waking up from hundreds of years of peace and prosperity in the culture and going, what happened? (laughs) I don't understand what I'm looking at. I I don't understand that the politicians can say this. What is going on? There really is a sense, I feel like, the church is waking up to a new reality, And the question then that must come in upon us in the midst of this new season, I think older generations in the church tended to think of the United States in a way that correlated to Israel. And now Christians coming up today think of it as Babylon. And I think the latter view is probably more correct, of course. We're more like exiles in Babylon than anything else. And that's a new reality for Christians who grew up in a different era, a different time. I am not saying, but when I say that many Christians are choosing a desperate alliance in the political process, I'm not saying that a vote for any specific candidate is inherently sinful. I am saying that a vote for any candidate is sinful if we do do so out of an idolatrous fear and a lack of confidence in God. Any vote can be cast in sin. And fellow Christian, I think it becomes a sin when your vote is a running to Egypt. Your vote becomes sinful when you view it as a source of protection, as a place of refuge. God will despise it, just as he despised the running of the Israelites down to Egypt in the days of Isaiah. Vote as you think best, but watch your heart as you do it. Don't put your trust and don't pin your hopes to something as flimsy and undependable as an election result. Just like in the days of Ahaz and Hezekiah, all that seems to be all of 
that we have enjoyed as Americans up to this point seems to be in peril. And just as in those days, one of the great issues of our day, really the main issue, is whether we will choose at this critical hour to proceed with a quiet confidence in God, or will we make desperate alliances? And I hear I'm not saying with any particular candidate, I'm saying with politics itself. Some trust in chariots and some in in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. Some trust in having the right balance on the Supreme Court. Some trust in the White House, but we trust in the name of the Lord. Some trust in whatever, but we trust in the name of the Lord. Can we say that as we go into the booth? I believe it's very critical. In fact, it's all critical. How you vote matters much less than the spirit with which you vote. Do we have a quiet confidence in God or are we desperate and panicky as we pull the lever? This is very important. It's very critical. This is what God judged the people of Israel for. Remember, he didn't exactly judge them for making an alliance with Egypt. He said, you've made an alliance with Egypt, but not by my spirit, not having sought my counsel. It's not that Egypt was inherently wrong. Where did Joseph go to with Jesus when Herod was seeking his life? Egypt. They ran down to Egypt, but God directed him to. That's the difference. These people didn't trust God. They had no quiet confidence in him. They said, God's asleep at the switch. Pharaoh we can talk to. And I think many Christians will vote in a similar way, and I think that that is inherently sinful and displeasing to our God. What is the opposite? What is the opposite of voting as a desperate alliance kind of measure? Well, I think it's described for us in the book of Jeremiah. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I'm in uh, Jeremiah 29, I believe. I'll start again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease." Verse 7, I think, is very critical. It says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Let that verse 7 just be a guiding principle in how you vote. It is for me. I'm going to read it again. I think it's just that important. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon... 
I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Two things to see in these verses. One, we have a present responsibility to seek the welfare of the city in which we live. Uh, Our choice is not between David and Solomon. It's more like a choice between Xerxes and Cyrus. Uh, We're in Babylon, and we're exiles. And I entrust you to just as an engaged citizen, a concerned citizen, to look at the different policies of anybody who's on the ballot, from the local dog catcher all the way up to the chief executive of the United States president, and just ask which is going to do the most good, and vote. I think that's all we can really do. But this is in many ways the opposite of a desperate alliance. Because this whole context of this is speaking to exiles who understand themselves as exiles, who understand this is a temporary season. And if it was true that we have a present responsibility to seek the welfare of the city, if that was true for God's exiles in Babylon, it would seem to be even more true for Christian exiles in this very Babylonian world. What then shall we do? Well, as Christians, we do the normal things. We build houses. We live in them. We plant gardens. We get married. We have kids. We go about life. And this does not contaminate you if you do it all for the real king and not just for eye service as men pleasers. Seek the welfare of the place where God has sent you. Think of yourself as sent there by God because you are. Pray to the Lord on behalf of your city. Ask for great and good things to happen for the city. Evidently, God is not indifferent to its welfare. One reason he is not is this. In the welfare of the city, his people find their welfare. Remember, the church is really, and I don't say this in an egocentric way, I hope, but my understanding from God's word is that God's people, the church, is the main show. God's people are the only people that will continue on into eternity. And so, God's blessing of this people will have its effect in the welfare of his people. And this does not mean we give up our exile orientation. In fact, we will do most good for this world by keeping a steadfast freedom from its attractions. We will serve our city best by getting our values from the city that is to come. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We will do our city the most good by calling as many of its citizens as we can to be citizens of the Jerusalem above. In Galatians 4.26, it says, But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So we want to live 
in such a way that the natives will want to meet our king when he comes and will receive him as their king. The other thing to note in here, and I think this is so important to understanding things, is that they speak here of a hope of future deliverance. I think the only way to vote in a way that is not a desperate alliance is to have a loose grip on this world. It's just to have a bedrock conviction that we have a future hope as Christians that goes beyond the waxings and wanings of the American socio-political scene. It has to. It has to. Since the beginning of the church, empires have risen and fallen. How many countries have begun and ended, and the church is still here? The Roman world that first received the church... All of the Western world dominated in the city of Rome. It's gone. It's completely gone. And I think that we need to have that sort of eternal perspective as we go into the voting booth on Sunday. That we have a future hope of deliverance. So let's pray right now. Let's just ask God. Let's draw before Him and let's Pray for him. On, let's pray to him on behalf of our city. Just pray for the United States. Pray for these people that we live amongst. And pray for God to bless the United States with what it needs. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray for my friends. And Lord, I just, uh, I pray, Lord, that you would, by the Holy Spirit, give them a supernatural ability to please you with their vote. Father, Christians of good conscience can disagree about who to vote for. But Father, we do humbly recognize before you that any vote could be cast in the wrong spirit. And so, Father, we ask you, Lord, to look beyond the simple act of voting to our motives in voting. Search us and know us. Convict us, Lord, if there is anything lurking there that's displeasing to you. 
Father, help us to approach this vote as an exile who just simply seeks the welfare of the city that we're living in, even as we look forward to eventually being delivered out of this place. Help us, Lord, as evangelists to win many more over to your kingdom. And Father, I just pray for the United States. We pray for our people. And we have a special affection for our people. And Father, we do just pray, Lord, that you would bring conviction into the midst of this great moral confusion in our country today. Father, we pray, Lord, that there would be a general return to the gospel, that there would be a revival in our land and among our people. We pray, Lord, that the church, that you would grant that the church would be able to hold true to its convictions in such a way, God, that you would be honored and that others would, that you'd be made visible. Father, I pray that in our unity, the church would point the culture to a more excellent way. And Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would use us to benefit the city that you have placed us in. And by that, I mean this country and this community here in Aroostook County. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In the midweek email, I told you a story from when I was a little boy. I grew up in a small Advent Christian church right outside of Washington, D.C., And because of our proximity to the nation's capital, I remember that when I was in elementary school, we had into-the-world drills, is what we called them. (laughs) But it was uh, in case of a nuclear attack. And instead of a fire drill where you went outside into the parking lot, they had a different drill for nuclear attack, nuclear fallout stuff. And they changed their policies at one point to going out in the hallway and sitting in the fetal position against the wall. But when I first began as a kid in kindergarten, they had us scramble under our desks. That was the first thing we were trained, and that's what I remember. Uh, I remember us giggling and smiling at each other from underneath the desks, a very strange thing in light of what we were training to do. It was in the 1980s, it was the Cold War, Reagan was in the Oval Office. And in those days, woven into just the fabric of the culture in the United States were, were Cold War realities. Everything from G.I. Joe to Rambo to, uh, what was the boxing guy? Rocky. All the Rocky movies, right? All of media just seemed designed to make me fear the Soviets. And I was. (laughs) I was a little kid. I did not have a nuanced view of the Soviets. They were something other than human to me, frankly, in my little kid mind. They were just a menacing, godless, unwashed horde on the other side of the globe that for some reason wanted to obliterate me and everybody I loved. That was basically my view. That's not a very sophisticated geopolitical view of the scene, but that's how it looked to me as a little kid. And I can remember very clearly, this is very vivid in my memory, one day after church, I was sitting on a little stage down in the fellowship hall. And there was a little window cut that separated the kitchen from the fellowship hall. And I heard my mom talking with some of her friends through that window. And one of her friends made the statement, it's going to be weird not having Reagan as president anymore. And I thought, weird? More like terrifying. (laughs) Because in my unsophisticated little boy mind, Reagan was like the white knight. He stood between us and the Soviet hordes. He was really what was holding all of that stuff at bay. 
Or at least he was the steady hand that I had come to like look to as a guardian protector of our people. Again, little kid stuff, forgive me. <laughs> I, in my inner world was truly shaken. It's hard to even put myself in that position now, but as a little kid, sometimes strange things will really, like a snow globe, just kind of shake your world. And that one sentence, Reagan's not going to be president anymore, all of a sudden made all the other lurking terrors more real, more pressing, more imminent. Submarines off the coast, intercontinental ballistic missiles. I went across the fellowship hall. My dad was sitting down. He was talking with a man. They were involved in some kind of conversation, and I very rudely, again, little kid stuff, just went up and said, hey, hey, dad, (laughs) is it true Reagan's not going to be president anymore? Now, my dad had no idea that I was walking in a nightmare. He just very, like, visibly annoyed and half-distractedly said, yes, that's right. I'm talking, (laughs) and just went back to his conversation, and it was the best answer he could have possibly given, because it was obvious he didn't care. (laughs) And I suddenly thought, well, if my dad doesn't care, maybe I shouldn't be so concerned. Maybe I don't need to be as worried as I am if my dad's not worried. And brothers and sisters, I just want you to know, God is not at all troubled about the outcome of this election. He's not worried. He's not concerned. None of it changes anything as far as his great purposes or his plans or the advance of the kingdom. Nothing that is necessary and needed is in peril. None of it. God is not worried about what kind of reality we will wake up to on the other side of this election. And for me, in my posture towards God, I can be like a little kid again. If he's not worried, then I'm free just to do my best on my test and try out for the sports team and try to be a good friend and a neighbor. I'm free to just live as I should live for Christ. Because honestly, how I vote only matters if I do it in a way that's free of idolatry. That's it. Just seek the benefit of the city you're living in and don't worry about the outcome because God is completely 100% in control and sovereign. Nothing can move against God or his people unless he wills it. And if he wills it, it's for our good. Let's pray. Right now, silently. What I want you to do is this. Uh, I'm going to pray in just a moment. But in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, we're told this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Right now, if this is good and pleasing to our God, I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment, but I just would ask that you pray for whoever would win the national election. Pray as you feel led. Pray for the Senate race. We're all sick and tired of the YouTube videos of Susan Collins versus Sarah Gideon, (laughs) Dale Crafts, 
and uh, Jared Golden, which incidentally, that commercial for Dale Crafts where he's like, they have the birds, have you seen this one? It looks, it's against Dale Crafts, but it looks like a video for Dale Crafts. <laughs> it's strange. Okay. <laughs> I think we're all ready for the, I'm a great student of the political commercials. I could go on and on and on. But right now, we all know the names at this point. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Donald Trump, Mike Pence. Susan Collins, Sarah Gideon, Jared Golden, Dale Crafts, all these elections that are up for grabs. I just want you to pray right now for those who will win. We don't know their names yet, but let's just pray for them, and then I'll close us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we know it is pleasing to you because in your word you tell us that it is that we would pray for those who you have put in authority over us. Father, we know that you have instituted government for our good, to reward good and punish evil. And Father, we pray that whoever you bring into office would be someone who knows the difference. Father, if they do not yet know the difference, then we pray that you would, in your mercy, Give them a love for righteousness and a willingness to govern in a way that confronts evil. Father, help us to do our level best as a people within a people, to remain true and faithful to you. God, give us wisdom as we vote, but God, most importantly, give us a heart that proceeds in a quiet confidence in you, having just done our best to weigh the different candidates and choose as best we can, who will do the most good for the place where you've put us during these years of exile while we wait to go home. Father, help us to represent you well. God, give us that quiet confidence in you. Father, we take great comfort in knowing that you are all-powerful and unstoppable. And that the outcome of this election has been known to you since before the foundations of the earth were laid. And we trust in your all-knowing sovereignty. Father, we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to represent you well as citizens. 
to not be contentious, to not be pushed off our feet by the confusing mingling of political passions with a passion for your kingdom. God, give us a growing love for our people. And Father, help us to love our neighbor well. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I just want to close by reading a scripture to, for, to you before we go out the doors. We sing one more song and go out the doors. In 1 Peter 2, it says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation.